Amen. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be, Ephesians chapter 4. And so if you want to flip there, um, you might just kind of open up to Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 2. It's going to take us a second to get there. Um, there's, there's some work we've got to do first before I can tell you what Paul's going to say. Um, now, in saying that, I want you to know that we're to the point of Ephesians, um, chapter 4 and really beyond, that scares me a little bit to preach. Um, like, there, there is a big part of me that, as I was preparing this week for this, um, was really scared. And, and it's, I, like, I'm not scared because I'm afraid to say what Paul's going to say to you. And, and so, by God's grace, I have courage to do that this morning, right? And so, but, but here's what I'm scared of, is that as you hear, this is what Paul's about to do. He's about to command you to do some things. He's about to say, do this and don't do that. Specifically this morning, he, he's going to get right in us on speak the truth. Don't lie. Don't be that. And then he's going to say, don't be the wrong kind of angry. Be the right kind of angry. Right? So he's going to tell us some do these things and, and don't do these things. And here's what scares me in the midst of giving you commands. Like in the middle of you hearing Paul say, do this, don't do that. What scares me is that you're going to rip, and this is going to be really natural for you to do. Because this is how you hear this preach most of the time. It, what's going to be really natural for you to do is to rip the command out of the context of what Paul's saying. Okay, this is going to be your natural inclination. And so now, now here's why this scares me. As soon as you rip Paul's command out of the context of Ephesians, when you rip it out of the context, here is all you're left with to motivate you. Guilt and fear. So if you, and this is going to be natural for you, okay, and I'm going to try to explain it, but if you're, if you rip, if all you hear today is Paul say, start telling the truth. I mean, who are you? Tell the truth. I mean, if that's all you hear him say, you're going to rip it out of the context of Ephesians, and all you're going to have is guilt and fear to motivate you to do it. So um, here's what it's going to sound like tomorrow when you're tempted to lie. I guess I better suck it up. You know, I mean, I guess I better grip my teeth and try a little bit harder. Um, and and th this is how, okay, let me illustrate this with sexual purity. This is why most, most youth pastors try to motivate teenagers by STDs. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can show them whatever slides you want to show them. But if you're motivating by guilt and fear, it will never work long term. You might get them for a week. But it will never last long term. Parents, you know this. If you try to, uh, parents, if, if you try to convince your kids to obey you with guilt, what happens as soon as they're outside of your presence? Right? I mean, they're laughing as they're breaking your law. Right? That's what they're doing. And so when fear and guilt are the motivator, it's just a matter of time before you start getting unmotivated. Th this is the problem. Okay, so if you rip these commands out of the context, you're going to be left with guilt and fear to motivate you. Guilt is never a good motivator. It will never last long. Okay, so, so if you, okay, this is why it's so important. Like we're going to have to work on this before we can get to Ephesians 4.25, right? And so unless we see the gospel as our motivation, long-term obedience is impossible. Until we see that the command is in the context of the gospel, the command will look hopeless to us. Until we see that the command is in the context of the gospel, we'll look at the command and say, can't do it anyway. Let's break it. Okay? Until we see it in the context of the gospel. The gospel gives hope. 
to the people of God to fulfill the commands of God. The gospel is the motivator for the Christian life. This is the motivator. So until we see this context, we're hopeless with the command. Okay, so I want to give you three context statements that basically just walk us through the book of Ephesians. And we're going to start with this. Over the, We started with it last week. We're going to start with it for the next couple of weeks. So just context statements that help us see that it's not just Paul saying, do this and don't do that. Okay, so context statement number one is a Christian is a new creation. Okay, this is what you are. If you're a Christian, look at me here. If you're a Christian, you are fundamentally changed. The core of you has been changed if you're a Christian. This is what God does. He, he comes in and he radically reorients the inside, on the heart level, the inside of us. We, okay, now, now this is going to be Paul's words for this. Is that we come into the world dead. Okay, like go, go back to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is Paul saying, when you slide into that doctor's hands, you are sinful. You have a disposition toward you. You have a disposition to throw off the rule and the reign of Christ and to be your own ruler. This is your, okay, now, Augustine, he, he was one of, if you look back in church history, Augustine was one of the prominent like, church theologians. You don't even know this, but you're deeply impacted by Augustine, right? Okay, so, so he, here's what he said about this. He said that if a baby could, if he had, the, if he had the, the ability to do this, if a baby had the ability to turn around, put his hands around his mother's neck, and demand milk, he would. Okay? This is how we're born. Okay, and this is what Paul's saying. You're dead in your trespasses. Ephesians 2.1. Okay, but it's not, okay, now that word dead means we're unresponsive. We're spiritually unresponsive to God. It gets worse than that, though. Look at verse 2, 2-2. Two, two. It's not only that we're dead, but we are walking in our deadness. So it's not just that we're unresponsive to God. When we are born, we are unresponsive and rebellious. Okay, look, look at what he keeps on saying, that you're following the course of this world. This is what we do when we're born. We follow the course of this world, not God. We stiff arm God and we say, world, let's do this. That's what we are when we're born. So he's saying you're following the course of this world. It gets even a little bit scary here, this next statement. Following the prince of the power of the air. You see that in, in 2-2? Following the prince of the power of the air. That your disposition when, you born, when you're born is to self, and this is what this text is teaching, and Satan. That's your disposition. Unresponsive, rebellious toward God. Okay, he goes on to say, and we all, verse 3, we all live this way in the passions of the flesh. Carrying out the, the desires of the mind and of the body. And look at what he says, and we're by nature children of wrath. When we're born, we're by nature children of wrath. This is what Paul is teaching here. And that, that, that's pretty humbling, isn't it? This is what we are when we come out of the womb, right there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Look at verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4. But God. You see that? But God. We are dead in our sin. But God. We're spiritually unresponsive. Unable to help ourselves. But God. We are rebellious following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air. But God. 
Okay, we, we have the finger flying high to God, joyfully on our way to destruction, right? But God. Okay, this is the, the greatest but in the Bible right here. But God. And look at what it says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead, even when we were unresponsive, rebellious, even when we were there. Look at what it says in verse 5. He made us alive. He breathes spiritual life into your spiritually dead lungs. This is what it means to be a new creation. For the first time when he does that, listen to this. For the first time when he breathes life into your lungs, your heart begins to beat for the things of God. For the first time, rather than running from God in rebellion, usurping his authority we joyfully come under the rule and reign of Christ. Okay, you can't miss this and get what it means to be a Christian. You can't miss this. Missing this is like trying to do math and not know numbers, right? It's impossible. So if we miss this, if we slide over this and we move on to other things, it makes everything in the Christian life impossible. That you are a new creation in Christ. This is what you are in him. A new creation. Like I love, okay, the story of Augustine. Like he, he's our main guy right now, right? And so um, I love this story of him. Before he became a Christian, his pre-Christian days, here, here's um, what he says about himself. He says that he was addicted to sex and loose living, basically. He was a sex addict. After he got saved, remade, spiritual life into his lungs. After that, he revisited one of the old cities that he used to live in, and an old mistress saw him there. And the old mistress uh, made a pass at him. Let's do this. Let's, let's, okay. He stiff arms her, rejects it. No, I'm not going to. She turns away in anger, and kind of as she's thinking about this, she, she thinks, okay, I, I know the problem. The, the problem is he, he's forgotten who I am. He's forgotten me. So so she turns around and says, Augustine, it is I. And he looks back at her and says, yes, I know, but it is not I. This is the new creation. Spiritual life into your lungs. This is a a John 11 moment. You know what happens in John 11? John 11, Lazarus is dead. He's been in a tomb. He is stinking in that tomb. He's dead. Jesus comes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. This is what it is. This is your Lazarus, come out moment. This this is what it means to be a new creation. That God breathes life into your lungs. Okay, now let me press a little bit further. Next context statement. Statement number two is that Christians are new creations because of Christ. Listen, everybody, this is like the, um, the misconception, broad picture in the Bible Belt, it is everybody thinks Christianity is spelled D-O-I-N-G, doing. It's what you are doing. It's not spelled doing. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, what Christ has done. Okay, look at verse 8, 2-8. Look at verse 2-8. For by grace you have been saved. It is the work of Christ in you that saves you. This is how you're saved. It is Christ. 
It's the grace of God sending Christ to live a sinless life, sending him to the cross as the sinless substitute and raising him from the dead as the sinless savior. It is grace that does that for you. No other reason. It's not because you contribute your good looks to it. Guys, we'd be in trouble, right? Okay, it's not that you contribute your church attendance to it. It's not that you kind of contribute your good moral lifestyle to it. You don't contribute anything to the grace of God that works in you. This is what Ephesians 2, 8 is telling us. It is by grace you have been saved. Here's what grace does. Grace melts the heart of stone that we're born with by the heat of God's son. That's what grace does. And then it says this next phrase, see it, through faith. So it's grace through faith. Here's what faith is. Faith is a grace-enabled response to the work of Christ. That's grace. It's a great, or that's faith. It's a grace-enabled response, melting our heart of stone when we look at Jesus and we say, I trust him. I treasure him. Grace is what enables faith, trusting and treasuring in Jesus. It is what enables us to look at Jesus and say, he is the treasure. You remember that moment when you got saved and Jesus looked like a treasure to you? This is, this is Matthew 13, the guy in the field. He he looks and he finds his treasure in the field, sells everything he has and purchases that field to get the treasure. This is what salvation is. This is what faith is. It is treasuring Jesus. If you don't treasure Jesus, you don't have faith in Jesus. Treasuring Jesus, trusting and treasuring, that is faith. Okay, look at the next phrase. He's going to clarify some things. Look at verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And, And look what he says. This is not your own doing. Here's what you contribute to your salvation. Your sin that makes it necessary. That's what you contribute to your salvation. So he's saying, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this salvation is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Look at this word. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. You know the only thing you have to boast in in your salvation is the work of Christ in you. Hear that? This is what Paul's saying. This is what you have to boast in. Me. That's all you've got to boast in. Isn't that beautiful? We've got a Savior that operates like that, that would look upon us with affection like that. Okay, we can't get past this. Hear this. We can't move past it. Okay, will you just, will you close your eyes and let me do something for you? I'm going to repeat some of Ephesians 1, and I want you just to think about it. See, our problem is we don't grasp the gospel well enough. We don't grasp all the gospel gives us. We don't. This is the gap of us now. We don't get all the gospel gives. So so I want to just try to paint for you what the work of Christ does for you. Will you just close your eyes and listen to this? Don't try to follow along. You can look at it later. But I want you to listen. Just listen to the scriptures speak to you here. 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed blessed you in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. In the gospel, you have every blessing. Every blessing is yours in Christ. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless because of the gospel in Christ You have been chosen. God sets his affection on you. 
you are approved in God's sight. You are his. You're accepted by him. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. How? Through Christ. You have been pulled into the family. You are an heir to the king. You're one of his. In the gospel, in Christ. Verse 7. In him, we have redemption. Redemption is I'm a slave to something else and God has rescued me out of that. And now I'm free to live for him. In him, you have redemption. 110. In Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. You have been reconciled to God. Peace with God has been had by the work of Christ. 111. In him, in Christ, you have obtained an inheritance. Do you know, and this is what Ephesians 1, the prayer at the end of Ephesians 1 is trying to tell us. Do you know the riches you have in Christ? This is what the gospel gives you. Unbelievable riches for everything you need in life. God's resources are available. 113. In him, you have been sealed. Do you know where your confidence for your future comes from? Christ sealing you with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wonder if you're saved. You don't have to wonder what's coming. You're sealed. Okay, look at me. This is the gospel. We need to get that. And it's in getting that that we can live in the commands. If we don't get that, if we brush past that, we have no pattern to get the commands. No pattern to live in the commands. The gospel, look at this. The gospel is the pattern, do this, and it's the power. This is the resources to do it in. The gospel is the motivator for that. Okay, last, last statement, and then we'll move right into the text. Therefore, okay, this is gospel logic. Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, new creation, because of that, therefore, a Christian's life should reflect the new creation. This is gospel logic. Okay, this is what Paul's saying in, in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, here's how he starts Ephesians 4. Therefore, because of 1 through 3, because you're a new creation, because you have all these resources in Christ, because of what Christ has done, therefore, this is what Paul says in 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You get the gospel, then you walk in the gospel. You're a new creation, so now our lives reflect the fact that we're a new creation. This is the gospel logic. Okay, look at me here. Look at me here. This is gospel logic. The gospel comes in and changes everything. The gospel renews you. And now you can live a life that reflects the gospel. This is how it works. The gospel renews, then we live a life that reflects. This is gospel logic. It's not guilt and then you live it. It is the gospel is what motivates and empowers good Christian living. Okay, this is the gospel lot. Okay, now, now th- this is where we pick it up in 417. Okay, skim down to, to verse 417. This is why the gospel logic, because of the gospel, now we live a life that's worthy of the gospel. We live in the gospel. We reflect the gospel. One set, 417 makes this clear. Now he's saying, okay, so because of what I've already said, now I say and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That you should no longer walk in the old you. You're a new creation. So walk in the new creation. 
there's a specific gate, a specific walk that a new creation has, that a new creation causes us to, to live like. And Paul's saying, because you're a new creation, you walk in that. It's, these commands are not me trying to make you something you're not. These commands are me trying to get you to live in what you are. That's the issue. Now, we're to verse 425. Okay, I told you, that was a lot of work to get there. But if we strip this command out of that context, all this is hopeless. We might as well go home now, right? And so all, what we're left to at that point is STDs. That's your best shot of not having sex outside of marriage. The gospel is the shot. That's it, okay? The gospel is it. It's the motivator. Okay, so here's where we pick it up in, in 25. He says this, therefore, having put away falsehood. So since this has happened, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one body. So here's what Paul's about to do in this text. Verse 25 through 4.1. He's going to give us six snapshot, snapshots of what a new creation looks like. Six snapshots of what it means to live in the gospel. Six snapshots of this. Okay, so here's the first one. Verse 25, he says this, new creations, take one, snapshot one, they speak truth. They speak gospel truth. That's what new creations do. This is what you are in Christ. So now this is how you live. This is what Christ has done in your life. So you live out of what he has done. He has made you a truthful person. So now you live in that truth. Okay, so let's take a step back and and just deal with the whole idea of lying. Wouldn't we all agree that we live in a trustless culture? Wouldn't you agree with that? We live in a... Okay. Simple proof of that is the fact that we have loggers, right? Okay, now it's not... Loggers get a bad rap. I I know that. But it's not because loggers are bad people. Why we... the, The issue here, the point here, is why do we have loggers? You know why you have a loggers? You know why you've probably had to do something with a loggers at some point? It's because of dishonesty, a lack of trust, lying, deceit. It's because of that. The reason we have lawyers is because you don't trust people and I don't trust people. The reason we have lawyers is because we know if we don't get a contract with somebody, we're all in trouble, right? This is the reason. So we live in a trustless culture. Okay, now if, if lawyers are here, car salesmen are like here, right? Okay, now, yeah, no kidding. Listen, I'm speaking general. If you're a car salesman, hey, I hope you're not one of these guys, right? All right. Okay, so so here's the problem with the car salesman. A car salesman is not trying to help you buy a car. You know what a car salesman is trying to do? They're trying to sell you a car. That's a massive difference in those two. My brother lives across the street. Oldest brother lives across the street from a car. He's a manager, owner of a car dealership. My brother pops into his office as he's completing a deal. Just laid down the phone, right? Just got that one solved. He looks at my brother and says, I just knocked his head off. Can you believe that? I just knocked his head off, right? He just confirmed every suspicion I've ever had about a car salesman, right? I just knocked his head off. I mean, I just decapitated this guy and how much I ripped him off right there. We live in a trustless culture. This, this is the culture that we find ourselves in. It is, it's trustless. How many of you, when the smoke of sexual scandal comes around a politician and he comes to the microphone and says, I did not have sexual relations with this woman? How many of you believe it? 
we live in a trustless culture. We just do. It's the reason you lock your doors. It's the reason your car door is probably locked right now. We live in a trustless culture. Okay, now look at me here. Our culture, trustlessness is pervasive. Now look at me. And it has permeated the church. You believe that? Permeated the church. You can find any statistic you want to, and I'll guarantee you, you won't find one that says, typical church person claiming the name of Christ is more truthful than somebody that doesn't. You won't find it. It has permeated the church. Look at me here. We need to hear what Paul has to say today because we are this. We need to hear this because Stonegate needs to hear this because there is elements of this in us. And listen, we just kind of call it by different names, right? We shade the truth. We don't lie. We shade it, right? I mean, we just kind of shade the conversation to make sure our point kind of gets across. We just kind of stretch. We don't lie. We kind of stretch the truth. I mean, our lie is a white lie, right? Yeah, okay. So, so it's permeated the church. And Paul's saying new creations. They speak truth. This is what new creations do. And when new creations get into a group of people, it's called the local church. And local churches, groups of new creations, dare to speak the truth. This is the issue. Okay, so, so let me ask you this question, because this is like fundamental in you getting to the bottom of, of truth and lying in your own life. Is why do you lie? You ever thought about that question? When you catch yourself lying, and if we had a recorder over your voice the last 24 hours, we probably would in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so, so when you lie, why is it that you lie? You ever thought about that? Okay, let, let me give you the answer to it real quick. The answer goes like this. Lying lips are the overflow of an idol. This is why you lie, because you have an idol in your heart. Martin Luther, the reformer, not King, the reformer. Okay, Martin Luther said this. He had a really good insight into the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is don't lie. Okay, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't murder, all these commandments, right? Two through nine commandments. He said every time we break commandment two through ten, every time we break it, you know the reason? Because we have already broken number one. What's number one? To love the Lord your God supremely, right? With everything. Every time you break commandment two through ten, it's a reflection that you've already broken number one. So think about when you steal. You know what you're saying? That I value what that can give me more than God. This is, what it, this is the idol underneath us. So when you lie, look at me here. When you lie, it is the overflow of a buried idol in your heart. What's an idol? An idol is anything we value more love more, pursue more, find our identity in more, anything we value, worship more than God. Our idol is what we attach significance to. That's what an idol is. And when you lie, look at me, when you lie, it means that you have taken your identity, your value system, and you have transferred it to something other than God. That's what it means to lie. That's, that's why we do it. So think about this, okay? Like, think about your idols. Like, why is it that you lie? Okay, it's, our idols are all a little bit different. Why is it that you lie? Okay, if you've got the idol of, uh, we'll say the approval of people, you know why you lie? Because you want to make sure you look good to other people. So, okay, now, now just play this out. When the phone call comes and uh, it said, hey, we were supposed to meet at 9. It's 9.10, where are you? Okay, now, now think about what happens in, in you right there. You know what happens in us? 
we start to thump through the Rolodex of ideas that can get us out of this looking good. The fact is, we overslept. I mean, he just woke us up. And, and we started thumbing through the Rolodex of, uh, well, that, I mean, I think my alarm didn't go off. My kid's sick, man. I had three appointments already this morning. This last one ran late, right? Pastor Pillow, he kept me just a little bit long there, right? We, we try to come up with all these things. Why? Because there is an idol in our heart that we value more than God. We value what this person thinks of us more than we value truth and what God thinks of us in that moment. That's why we lie. If your, value, if your idol is money, you know why you lie? To make an extra dollar. You'll bend the truth, shade the truth, shape the truth. You'll do it all to get an extra dollar. If, you're, if your idol is convenience and comfort, listen to this. If your idol is convenience and comfort, this is how your conversation works out. Somebody calls, your wife picks up the phone. You know who it is. You don't want to talk to them. When your idol is convenience and comfort, here's what you'll do. You tell him, I'm mowing. I'll, I'll be gone for four days, then I'll, I'll call him. That's what we do. When our idol is comfort and, and security and, and convenience, We'll lie to, to get it. Lying is an overflow of idols in your heart. You see that? That's why we lie. Okay, now listen to what Paul says now. In saying that, listen to what he says. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Okay, now listen to this. This is a declaration, right? He's saying that this has happened. Lying lips have been dethroned in you. At the cross, this is the gospel. This is our motivation here. At the cross, when Jesus died, lying lips were dethroned. This little ruler that set itself up in your life just got dethroned when you became a Christian, when you became a new creation. It got dethroned and God took its place. So now, here's, here's the deal. This is a past act. This is not something, he's not saying you, you kind of do this now. He's saying this is what has happened. This is a completed action in the past. That's what this putting away falsehood is. Completed action in the past. And Paul is saying this is what the gospel has done for you. When you're a new creation, when you lie, you're not living like what you're created to be. When you lie, you're kind of running back to the dethroned enemy. When you lie, you're putting back the old clothes of the old creation. I have made you new. So so you're a new creation, so so you don't lie anymore. I have freed you, listen to this, in the gospel, on the cross, I freed you from the need of the approval of other people because I've given it to you. I freed you from the need of money because I've given you everything you need. I have freed you from, from, I've freed you from every idol that fuels every lie. I've freed you from it. I have put it away for you. That's a gospel declaration. And if we forget that, then we'll never tell the truth consistently. It has been done. It has been put away. Christ has made you new. Okay, now wouldn't we all agree, though, that that little dethroned rebel called lying lips continues like to lob these grenades into our life, into our conversations, right? I mean, wouldn't we all agree with that? If you, like, and and this is the problem that I, I feel like we could have in here, is that we're so numb to lying that we don't even realize we're doing it half the time. I I really think if we just followed you around with a tape recorder, in all of our lives, we would see this dethroned enemy. enemy. And this is how this lying lips, this dethroned enemy works. He just does this guerrilla warfare thing. So you think you kind of got him whipped until he pops out and shoots you, right? 
Okay, this is how he works. So um, a couple of months ago, my brother calls me on a Monday, kind of mid-morning. Mondays are my Sabbath. Mondays are the day, my favorite day of the week, right? This is Monday. I sleep in on Mondays. I, I don't do a lot on Mondays. Monday's the day off. It's the Sabbath. It is me and Laura, fam, we're just trying to, to soak up God on Mondays. That, that's our Monday. Okay, so, so on Monday, he called me. And he said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, did you sleep in? I said, yes, I did. He said, how long did you sleep? Does that sound like a threatening question to you? That's, I mean, does that sound threatening? I mean, when I just ask it to myself, it doesn't sound threatening. But when he asked me that, it was like he just challenged my manhood. Right? I mean, he just stepped across the line. And so something switched in me. And, and something switched. And, and all of a sudden, it was, okay, I think I woke up at 8.30. But here's what came out of my mouth. Eight. I woke up at eight. Like, this proves that I'm a better man. Right? My manhood just got rescued because I woke up 30 minutes earlier. What is that in us? Right? It's the idol that cares so much about what other people think that we will sacrifice truth on that altar. When God is saying, I have freed you from that. That is a dethroned enemy. So now you hunt it down and destroy it. Okay, this is the issue. God is saying, I've dethroned that for you. This is a gospel declaration. This is how we live this thing. Is reminding ourselves that God has done this. If you're a new creation, lying lips, idols that fuel it, dethrone. Okay, now he's going to give the command. See, he hadn't given the command yet. All he said is, I've done this for you. I've got this. I've dethroned this. On the, and then he gives the command. Here's the command. Speak the truth. Real straightforward, right? Don't lie, speak the truth. But you will never not lie and speak the truth until you get the gospel centered on your heart. You'll never do it. Until we get that God has made us a new creation, so we live as this new creation. Now he's going to say, speak the truth. And listen, we need to hear this because it has permeated our church. It has permeated, permeated our conversations. It is in us. Just like it was in the people in Ephesus, it is in us. And we need to hear Paul's admonition, his command, speak the truth. Look at me here. When you consistently lie, you sew your lips tight, making gospel conversation impossible. Your credibility to speak the gospel depends on you speaking truth consistently. You hear that? We sew our lips when we lie. It makes it impossible to speak the gospel. Impossible. Impossible in your family. Impossible in your workplace. Impossible in your neighborhood. If people know that you lie and lie often, it takes all gospel credibility out, right? So we need to hear this, that you are created new, renewed, dethroned enemy, the reign and rule of Christ in you. Now live like it. You're a child of the king, so live like it. You've got your approval in God, so live like it. Your acceptance is in God, so live like it. You don't have to have the approval of others. You don't have to. We'll all be fine without it because we've got the approval of God. 
So he's saying, speak the truth in love. He's saying, listen, I created you new. You're a new creation. And your clothes, your new clothes are not lying lips. Your new clothes that fit you as the new creation, your new clothes are truth-telling clothes. That's what you are. So speak the truth. Okay, then he gives um, a warning here. this This is what it will cost this group if we don't. Look at what he says here. Last phrase. He says, for we are members of one another. He's saying, listen, community is built on trust. If you, do, if you do not have trust, you don't have community. You just don't. And if, if you don't have truth being spoken, you don't have trust. See the logic? Community is dependent upon trust. Trust is dependent upon people speaking truth. So listen, you don't sin in a vacuum. You sin in your family, in your marriage, in front of your kids, in your church. And when you sin in lying lips, okay, when you throw these rockets over, they've got these relational warheads on it, right? And when they hit, shrapnel flies everywhere. It makes community impossible. Okay, when lying lips hits, people die, all that community becomes an, an impossibility. This is how this works itself out. I, I love how this one commentator said it. He said, A lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. When we don't speak truth, we harm our body. It would be like you as the brain telling um, the hand, hey, we don't have a mouth anymore, so why don't you go ahead and stick that, that fork with that food? Why don't you just go ahead and stick that in your eye, right? This is what lying is to the body. When we do not speak the truth, we stab, like this, this commentary, right? We stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. Okay, so let me give you the solution. Just to make sure this is clear, then we'll, we'll get to the next one. And we'll be quick here. Solution. The solution is the gospel. We have to know the gospel. We have a dethroned enemy. Falsehood been put away. All idols that we think we crave, their, their value, their identity, all those idols have been dethroned. The gospel has made you a new creation, accepted in Christ, everything you need in him. You don't need to lie. That's the gospel. And then we've got to daily remember that thing. Amen? We've got to, da- we've got to wake up tomorrow and remember, I'm a new creation. I don't have to have the approval of whoever. I can tell them I slept in. I can tell them that, right? It's okay. So we have to daily remember that. You, you might do this as just a, a daily routine. Every one of us takes off what we slept in and we put on new clothes every morning, except like if you're in college, right? Then you just wear the same thing all week. Okay, so, so every one of us do that. And so maybe this would be a good thing for us every morning when we wake up to just remind ourselves that God has disrobed lying lips and he has clothed you with truth. Every morning, just remind yourself of that. You've been clothed with truth, right? Okay, here's the last one. Verse 26. And we're going to hustle here. Paul says this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, so we've just moved from lying. Now here's snapshot number two of a new creation. Is that they have gospel-centered anger. Gospel-centered anger. They are people that you would look at and say, they're angry, angry in the right way though. Gospel-centered anger. 
Oh, okay, so, so let me just point out a couple of things here. Number one is that this is a command. Gospel-centered anger is, look at the first two words. This is an imperative. In other words, a command that Paul's giving. Be angry. Now, is that kind of great across you just a little bit? I mean, that sounds a little bit weird, right? He's saying to us, be angry. And listen, as a Christian, you have got a gospel obligation to be angry at things. You do. You've got a gospel obligation. If you're a Christian, look at me here. If you're a Christian, there is a gospel obligation to be angry at the things God is angry at. And listen, God was angry. Like you read Exodus chapter 4, he almost killed Moses because he didn't really do the circumcision thing that well. Tried to kill him right there, right? That's angry. Okay, you go to the New Testament and you've got Jesus tipping over the tables in the temple, right? Remember that? Okay, in, in Matthew 23, you ought to read Matthew 23. You'll get a good sense of holy anger here. I mean, th- in Matthew 23, here's what, here's what Jesus does. He goes ahead and straps on the boxing gloves, steps into the ring, and he starts to throw uppercuts left and right. I mean, he comes out of the corner with a roundhouse kick in Matthew 23. Okay, this is what happens. He is angry. And we, as his people, should be angry at the things he is angry at. And we should love the things he loves. If you're a Christian... You should be angry at the things that breaks God's heart. When you look around and you see prostitution, it should break your heart. When you see political corruption, it should break your heart. When you see poverty, it should break your heart. When you see disease, it should break your heart. When you see war, it should break your heart. When you see um, rape, incest, abuse, when you see these, it should break your heart when you see them. Those things should crumble us on the inside. And isn't it a strange thing when we have become numb to the things that break God's heart? Isn't that a strange thing? John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians says this. These verses reorganize or recognizes that there is such a thing as Christian anger. And it might be on the screen for you, yeah. There's such a thing as Christian anger. And just listen to this. You don't have to worry about writing it, just listen. There's such a thing as Christian anger. And too few Christians feel it or express it. I go further and say that there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way that God never does. And I believe that. When did we become so numb that our hearts don't break anymore? When and how does that happen, right? Okay, now he's making a distinction here between two kinds of angers. There is a self-centered anger and there is a gospel-centered anger. A self-centered anger is this sort of anger. It's the sort of anger that, that we are angry. We are mad because our ways, my ways have been maligned. I have been disrespected and dishonored. This is self-centered anger. Self-centered anger is, how dare them? What are they doing, right? I mean, self-centered anger is, you're telling me that you didn't put the dishes in the dishwasher? Self-centered anger is, you didn't put the toilet seat down? If you're a guy, it's, you didn't leave it up, right? Self-centered anger is angry because people aren't complying with our plan. Self-centered anger is, is angry because people aren't getting it, right? People aren't getting the fact that we're the ruler of our world and they need to be a part of that. 
I mean, they're not getting our plan for our life. This is self-centered anger, right? Self-centered anger is the anger that loses control, flies off the handle. People have to walk in eggshell. This is self-centered anger. And the Bible is going to call this a sin. 431, you can look down in, in chapter, a couple verses down, verse 31. It says, put off this anger. That is self-centered. There's no room for that. You're not made for that. And then he's going to say this. There's gospel-centered anger. Gospel-centered anger is being angry at the things that makes God angry. We are angry because the name of God has been maligned. Because his ways are being distorted. This is gospel-centered anger. We break at the things that break God. We love the things that God loves. This is gospel anger. Okay, look at me here. Here is our problem. We get angry at the things that God is not angry about, and we are numb to the things that break his heart. This is our problem. This is our issue, is that we are much more concerned about the guy that just cut us off, right? We are much more concerned about our plan for the world not happening. We are much more concerned with us being at the center of our universe and everybody else revolving around us. I mean, just ask yourself, what are the things that you've gotten angry about lately? Just ask yourself that question. Okay, let me show you a picture of gospel-centered anger. Okay, this is going to be in in Mark chapter 3. And and let me just read this to you. You, Don't flip there. We're going to have to hustle. You can flip there later. Mark chapter 3. First five verses go like this. And Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Okay, and they, the Pharisees, watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it, and he said to the Pharisees now, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? But they were silent. And then look at what he says. And he looked around, Jesus looked around at these Pharisees and look at what it says here. With anger. He looked at them with anger. And then look at the next phrase. Don't miss the next phrase right here. Looked at them with anger grieved at the hardness of their hearts. You see that? Gospel-centered anger. Look at me right here. Gospel-centered anger is a grieving anger. You know what I think the world knows about the church? Is that the church is angry. You know? I mean, they know that we boycott Disney because they do something. They know that we boycott this because they've done something. We know that, that we hate these people and we like... The world knows that we're angry. But you know what the world does not know? That we weep. And you know why the world doesn't know it? Okay, look at me right here. Because so few of us do. John Piper was at a conference on a panel answering questions. And one of the people he was on the panel with was a guy that was the editor of a theological slash political magazine. And he's asked a question, this this guy edited the magazine, and the guy goes off on political left-wingedness. He goes off, right? Sarcastic, condescending. John Piper looks at him at the end of that. Let me read to you what he said. For a long time, I've appreciated your ministry. You are an astute observer of our culture. I read your magazines every month. It's always insightful. But there's one thing missing from your ministry. The guy says, well, what is it? His response, tears tears. You know the one thing I think missing from some of our lives is tears. We're so good at being angry, and we should be. We should be angered here because the name of God is defamed. But look at me here. 
we should also be grieved because people were not created for sin. They were created for God. And if you can be angry and not grieved, your anger is not gospel-centered. It's a grieving anger. And by the way, it's grieved over anger, or it's grieved over sin wherever it finds it. Hey, look at me here on this one. It's grieved over sin wherever it finds it. Look at me here. Even when, it's, even when it finds it in your own heart. John Flavel, an old uh, Puritan pastor, used to say that um, we, no problem. We can count, we can be angered at, we can cry against the thousand sins of others. I mean, we can shake our fists at the thousand sins of others. But it's really difficult to kill one of our own, isn't it? You know you're born with the natural ability to think more highly of yourself than you should. Natural ability. And here's what gospel-centered anger does. It is as grieved, more grieved, more angered at sin in your own heart than it is at the sin of others. You get that? Okay, this is how one author put this. Self-centered anger points the finger out first. So uh, first finger is pointed out. Gospel-centered anger points the first finger in. Your anger should be just as fierce at your sin as it is the sins of others. Self-centered anger says, who are you? Who are you? Gospel-centered anger says, who am I? And then look at how he finishes it. Until you can cry out, who am I? We have no business crying out, who are you? This is gospel-centered anger. It is as fierce with ourself as it is with anybody else. Okay, last thing and we're done. The biblical boundaries of anger. We'll fly through this and, and be out. He gives three um, kind of boundaries to go around anger. First one, he says, do not sin in your anger. So, so there's a gospel-centered anger that's rooted in what God loves and what God hates. There's a self-centered anger rooted in what you love and what you hate. And if we are in the what you love and what you hate category, we're sinning when we're angry. When we're angry. Okay, daddies, when people have to walk on eggshells around us, it's a self-centered anger. When we fly off the handle, do our little temper tantrum, the whole thing, self-centered. And he's saying, listen, it's sin. Put that away. And then he gives the next one. Do not sit in your anger, right? Don't let the sun go down on it. The longer you sit in anger, the more acidic it becomes. See that? The longer you sit in anger, the more acidic it becomes. So you sit in your self-centered anger long enough and it will eat its way through everything that's valuable. It will eat its way through your family, through your church, through your kids, through your everything. It's acidic. Okay, then he says the last one. Do not allow Satan to work in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. We'll end with this. Laura, uh, my wife, grew up in a family that... uh, her daddy is a good guy. I mean, I, I, I never did get to meet him, but by all accounts, a great guy. He died when she was 19. And he, he, great guy. He had massive moments of, of anger. Massive moments of anger. And so good guy. But I mean, this was just a periodic thing that would fly up. And so they would have to hide things, right? And so it would be, we have to hide this bill because we don't know how he'll react to that. We have to make sure this is kind of hidden because... Uh, we might get the silent treatment for the next four days. We're going to have to really kind of be careful with this because he might blow up on us. Okay. That little seed of anger in their family flourished, became this thorn that did a lot to choke out the spirituality of their family. 
You know? I'm not saying he's a good guy. This sin will choke people around you, though. 20 years later, Laura and I are married today. You know what we still deal with? His daughter, what, what we still deal with? The flowers of that anger. So daddies, look at me. You want to give that to your kids? You want to do that? This is, this, this is what you give them. Mamas, you want to give that to them? This is what you give them. So Paul says, give Satan no opportunity. You weren't created for your new creation. So we get to walk in peace. Let's pray. The gospel is the pattern. Do this. But first, the gospel is the power. You are this. Okay, now, when, when you hear these, um, don't lie. Don't, don't be self-centered angry. You, you, let me tell you what it does to me. And I just want to be real honest with you here. It crumbles me when I look at my life. It makes my knees a little bit weak when I think of how many times I've been the truth, shade the truth for the approval of people. It hurts me when I think about um, things I'll say and, and how I say them that I know mislead. When I think about anger, you know, it, it, like it really does grieve me that I've become numb to some things that break the heart of God. And I hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that you feel that. I hope that by the power of the Spirit that you can see that in your life. And I hope that by the power of the Spirit working through the gospel, that you can see that you have a Savior from it. Now, I hope you can see that. The gospel has made you a new creation. So we walk in the newness. We get to display what we are. We can, we can keep the old clothes off, the dethroned enemy out, and we walk in what God has made us to be. So we'll sing a last song. And I, really, I want to just invite you to repent this morning. That's what I want to invite you to do, to repent. And so if, if there are lying lips in you, that, that you would be able to confess those, you'd be able to dig into those idols. God is ruthless in excavating idols for us. That, that you would be able to, to repent of those things. If today anger is your deal, if your family walks in action, okay, if that's your deal, that this would be a moment that you can repent and that you can say, God, I need you. Here's the issue. God, I need you. Make the gospel real to me. Make it real. So that tomorrow when I wake up, I'll realize that the old me's gone. The old me's done. The new me's here. That it's no longer I. God, will you help us in that? God, I pray for great grace for us, that we would be a truth 
telling community. A gospel-centered, angry community. Angry and grieving. Angry and weeping. God, help us. Help us to do that. It's by your great grace. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing?